Perspective. I'm your hostess, Nicole Steele, and today I'm excited to have one of our Priceless Posse members and someone who's no stranger to our show joining us. Ms. Audra McDaniel is the Associate Producer and Education Coordinator for Diamond in the Rock, and today she will be my co-hostess. Welcome to the show, Audra. Thank you. And now for our special guest. She's a two-time published author empowerment speaker, and life coach with an incredible personal story of strength, courage, and resilience. She is a personal certified counselor, holds a master's degree in counseling, and is a retired proud Navy veteran. She's been featured on television, radio, and in print publications and has a lengthy list of accomplishments. Seeing her in all her glory, you would never imagine that she grew up on the streets of New York on the Lower East Side as an abandoned child in the foster care system. But she did not allow her past to determine her destiny. With her most recent book, which is entitled From Foster Care to Fabulous, I'd like to welcome Ms. Capri Cruz. Well, thank you so much. Good morning, and I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, ma'am. Now, if you don't mind, Capri, can you take us back to what life was like growing up in New York? I've heard a little bit about your story, but I think that it would be so powerful for you to share it with our listeners today. Well, um, thank you for asking that because New York is, the spirit of New York is in my core. It played a very important part in who I grew up to become and, and the strength and the vision that I had for my life. A lot of that, I believe, came from New York. And so, you know, as a young child up until the age of seven, um, all I have are pictures for my recollection. But even in those pictures, there was a liveliness that is reflected, that I can see, that I remember. And then when I moved back to New York at the age of 13, I stayed there until I was about 16. And that was a very important time for me also because that was my core teenage years from 13 to 16. And so, you know, growing up on a personal level, it was very dysfunctional. My family was dysfunctional. My parents were substance abusers. And then when I moved back at 13, my father moved me into my grandfather's house as a 13-year-old teenager. And I'd never met my grandfather, um, maybe when I was a very young child. But um, at 13, I was coming out of the foster care system. So he places me with a man that I had never met who end up, uh, ended up abusing me mentally and sexually and, uh, you know, locking me in the home for hours at a time without electricity and food and 
and light, even light. He would shut off all the lights. So he was a very sick man and dysfunctional. Um, but the spirit of New York City strengthened me. So let me ask you this, Capri. Um, were there people along your path that were instrumental who played an important role in helping you during your trials of adolescent years? And if so, who were those people and what did they do to encourage and support you? Um, absolutely. But, you know, I don't think it's in the way that the average person may think. And I, I'll try to explain that. So living in foster care from 7 to 13, there was one instrumental person, and that was uh, one foster parent that I had, and I continue to have a relationship with her. But I only lived with her for two years, and then I lost contact with her. And that was from the age of 10 to 12. And then when I moved to New York from 13 to 16, the people that played the strongest role in my life were my friends. And, you know, I would have to say not really another person, but my own mind. My mind tried to help protect me. Because when you grow up in abuse and you've experienced foster care, and, you know, at that point I was experiencing abuse in my grandfather's house, and you've never had family, you never had a support system. I grew up in fear, so I didn't reach out to anyone. I was scared to tell anyone my secrets. And so I I was most influential in myself by keeping myself safe. You know, as survivors, as victims, we we learn to protect ourselves in different ways. So the answer to your question is my foster mom who I lived with for two years, and then later on in New York, I had one or two friends that were instrumental in um, and just being my friend. They didn't offer, they didn't know my secrets, they didn't really help me. They were just my friend. They helped me feel normal. You know what I mean? Now let me ask this, Capri, because I know you say that you were in foster care from 7 to 13, and in that time, if I'm correct, I think that you were in up to seven foster care families. Is that right? That's correct. Mm-hmm, yes. Okay, so um, seven or nine? Actually, I think it was nine. I, I was in there seven years, but it was nine homes. Wow. And then going from there into this abusive household with someone that's your flesh and blood. What mm-hmm. happened at sixteen with your in that situation that you were in with your grandfather? I know that there was a, a shift that took place. Mm-hmm. Can you share with our listeners what happened at sixteen? Uh, sure. Actually, it was um, it was right after my 15th birthday because I recall it was my last year of junior high school, and I ended up running away. And it amazes me how that unfolded because by myself, I lived in fear. But I met this young guy. He was about 18, and well, he was older than me at the time. I say young now because I'm not 15 anymore. But I met this guy after school. And, you know, I was physically attracted to him. I was like, man, this guy is, you know, back in the day we used to say fine. I was like, man, this dude is so fine. And, you know, we started just talking as people. And you have to understand, up to that point, I had been the ugly duckling. And I had been the person that was getting locked in their home for hours at a time while my grandfather would go to work and until my grandmother would come home. And when I say locked in the house, I mean that he had on the front and back doors the locks that required a key to get in and out of the home. 
So it never dawned on me. My awareness was very limited. It never even dawned on me to climb out the window or run away or where would I go. You know, maybe I had thought of those things, but it was a very quick thought. So I just kind of sat there, and year after year I became more fearful and more fearful. And he was a very large a statuesque type of man. He, you know, I write in my book that he kind of walked with the fist of iron. He wouldn't beat me, but his energy was very fear-inducing. So, you know, when I met this young man, this idea of just connecting with another person, someone's spirit, um, and we became friends. And he invited me to the movies after school that day. There was a new movie out, and and I accepted So because his spirit connected to mine on some level, and he was, you know, friendly to me, he was kind, which most people had not really been to to that point in my life on that kind of level. I went to the movies with him, and then afterwards, you know, reality smacked me in the face, and I was like, holy moly, it's dark outside to be home at 3.30, and it was like 7 or 8 at night. And so I told this guy, I said, uh, I got to tell you something, you know, I can't go home. And so I became a runaway. He was the first person I explained to that I had been being sexually abused in my home. And I told him I can't go home. So what did you all do at that point? Uh, at that point, he was uh, he was staying with his cousin. I was living in Queens at the time. And he was visiting his cousin. And so he had a job working on a bread truck. And so... I ended up sleeping in his bread truck for a while while he was working. And then by the time he got off of work, it was, you know, early afternoon. And so we would he would sneak me into his cousin's house, and I would sleep in the room until, you know, his aunt was at work, so she didn't know I was there until, you know, one day I got caught. And, um, and that was my routine. I would sleep in the bread truck in the early morning hours and then go sneak in his room and, and sleep there as a runaway. Wow. So how long did that go on? How long did you just live a life of on your own? I mean, really trying to survive. Uh that that only lasted maybe 2 weeks. And then his aunt came into the room one day and, you know, kind of surprised me and she found me. You know, I was a stowaway. I was a runaway, so I was hiding and uh I I didn't let people see me. And um, when she found out, um, they talked, and, you know, surely she told him, you know, I could not stay there. And and by this time, my grandfather and my father had posted my graduation picture from junior high school on, you know, the poles, the electrical poles or whatever, out on Jamaica Avenue. And so they were looking for me. So the guy ended up running into my dad and talked to him. And by this time, I was completely fearful. I was like, no way, I'm not talking to my dad. And he was like, no, you need to go talk to your dad and, um, you know, figure this out. And, you know, in just the two weeks that I had run away by that time, I really gained a sense of personal power. It, It was really amazing to me. I felt extremely independent. And I think that's what happens, you know, even though we're very vulnerable as runaways, we become survivors and we become people that live on our own terms sometimes. Uh, I did. I became a person that was like, no way, I'm not going back to that house. And so, um, you know, and my, you know, it boggles my mind to this day how my father was 
trying to talk me into moving back in with my grandfather. He says, oh, your grandfather says he'll never do that kind of thing again. And and I'm like, oh, my goodness. You know, today I say, you know, oh, my gosh, was he insane? But um, I just coordinated with friends, and I became, you know, what's known today as a couch surfer. But I would move in, you know, I lived with one of my girlfriends for a couple months, um, and then my grandfather came and threatened to call the police on her for um, harboring a runaway minor, and so she told me I had to move. And at some point, I don't really recall where I was living anymore, but I remember uh, having a gallbladder attack, and I ended up in the hospital, and my brother found out, and so my brother took me in at, like, age, uh, right before I turned, like, 17. So it was about two, almost two years later my brother took me in. Now, did you remain in school this entire time, or did you just... Absolutely not, no. Um, yes, by that time I had dropped out of high school because, as we know, uh, with runaways and with children um, going through these kinds of things that do not have stability or family, um, you know, there's no way to continue the school. And in New York it was kind of easy to drop out. Uh, there's so many kids in New York City that um, it's hard for the school system to keep up at least at that time. And um, and so, no, I, I dropped out in the 10th grade. But I, I ended up going back. I ended up going back when I moved to Virginia. You definitely went back. And not only did you go back, but you have continued on in your pursuit of higher education, which I think um, it should be commended. Let me ask this, and then I'm going to let Audra um, chime in. I know she's got questions. I can only imagine um, during that time and, and probably throughout all your childhood and into your teenage years, you probably had people in your life who categorized you, who stereotyped you and put you in a box and placed limits on you based on your circumstances. How did you overcome those negative people and negative words or did it take time? Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. The stereotypes that you put on me. Now, oh, you have to understand, I was a northerner, a New Yorker, and then I moved to rural Virginia, Mechanicsville, Virginia, right? Like, uh, you cannot be on two, you know, opposite sides of the spectrum, so, you know, in New York, I didn't have any stereotypes, um, not when I was a child that I recall, can recall and not as a teenager. But, man, when I went down to Virginia, they they put me through the ringer. You know, I was, uh, you know, I, I, I used the names in my book. They were very derogatory, <clears throat> but I was a mud something and a dirt something and go back to where you came from, um, and not all of them, not all of them, but the children in the school system, they were very, very um, tough on me, you know, some of them. And uh, and this is the beauty uh, about racism, is that everyone experiences it and everyone can learn from it. So it's not just white on black or black on white, but we have so many races and ethnicities now that it is a universal experience. But when people learn how to view things from the perspective of empowerment, 
from this is a learning experience. You know, that shift in mentality is everything. Uh, But until you're taught that, then you experience it the way I did, that, you know, as a victim, right? So when I left high school in rural Virginia, because it wasn't just the white people that were giving me all kinds of problems, I went into the military. And the job field that I had was predominantly white or black people in that job field. The black people, the girls specifically, um, they were all over me sometimes. You know, they didn't understand why I dated black men. And, you know, the white guys were making bets at work, you know, can they get me to date them? You know, does she only date black men? And, you know, oh, my gosh. And so I suffered greatly um, because I didn't know who I was. You know, a kid from foster care who's gotten abused, who's been through racism in rural Virginia as a teenager, uh, who didn't really have anybody to talk to about any of this. So none of it made sense to me because I grew up in New York where I didn't experience any racism. And so then I go into the military and I got it from both sides of these, these races. And I'm like, man, what in the heck is going on? And one day I got tired of it. I got tired of explaining to people that I'm I'm white-skinned because my mother's white, but, you know, I eat Puerto Rican food because I'm Puerto Rican. I'm biracial, but you may not be able to tell, you know, black guys. And some girls would be like, you know, you sound black, but you look white. What are you? And, you know, it's a whirlwind of confusion if you don't know who you are. And so it made me figure out who I am. And what helped me get through it was I just decided I got tired of explaining it to people. And I accepted the fact that I was from the North and I was from the South, and I loved both cultures. I didn't have to pick. I was multifaceted. And I understood that these people that were giving me a hard time, and granted it wasn't all white people in Virginia, you know, and it wasn't all black people or white people in the Navy. It was, you know, a few and, and when I accepted that I loved who I was, that, yes, I could be barefooted because that's what Southerners do. They walk barefooted. Uh, but I could also dance to country rock or salsa music. That that was okay, you know. Um, and when I embraced my own culture and my own self and created my own identity, that's when it no longer was a problem. It was other people's problem because they didn't understand me. That's great, and that that is so important because when it comes to racism, I mean, ignorance has no color, <laughs> has mm-hmm. no you know specific group. Like you said, it can be all races, all social and economic um, levels. Ignorance is in all of those pockets. But when a person understands who and whose they are, it's a game changer. Well, Audra, I know you have some questions for her, so I'll turn it over to you. Yes, um, Capri, I would like to know, um, how has your faith played a part in your success? Oh, that's a really great question because um, it's everything to me right now. Without the ability for me to believe in something that I cannot see, which for me is a core definition of faith, there would be no me because that is what started and that is what continues to empower me. Um, and my faith in, in God and my faith in Jesus being the Son of God and that he He died on the cross for my sins, when I learned that, when I accepted that, it became a part 
of my being. So prior to me, and it, it took a long time for me to get there. Um, I, the first time I, I gave my life to Christ was when I was 14. I was living in my grandfather's house when he was abusing me, and I found a little note I wrote. You know, the church gave me a little note to say I give my life to Christ, and I found that many years later. Um, and then I can recall being 28 years old in the military, and uh, I had started going to a church across the street that was actually in a high school, and I had invited the pastor over to bless my home because my daughter was acting out. She was five years old, and, and I was drinking and smoking um, at that point, being dependent on alcohol because I didn't know how to solve problems in my life. I was still very lost, and uh, I recall hiding my rum and coke behind my tree in my home, you know, this plant. And I let him in, and he prayed over my home and over my, my daughter and I. And, and uh, I was still lost. I was seeking God. And um, even in Hawaii, when I was 25, um, no, I was 35, I recall going to church still seeking. And what I learned was I had not accepted. See, at some point we have to stop seeking and accept and once we accept, then we, you know, the student becomes the teacher in a sense of our community. So for my faith, once I claimed it, once I proclaimed it, you know, it it became who I am. And at my core, I am a Christian. I am a person of faith. And I understand my personal power through the authority that, that God has given me and that Jesus says in the Bible, I have over my life. So it is, it is everything. Without it, I'm nothing. I am, I am who I used to be. Wow, that is, that's truly amazing. And um, I also wanted to know, did you always imagine yourself doing what you're doing today, or can you pinpoint when you set your mind to achieve the things that you have? Ah, girl, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I never... You know, I was in the military until I was 40 years old. I just retired in 2010. And this is, you know, for my own perspective, uh, this is the phenomenal thing about my my journey. You know, yeah, you know, growing up in foster care and being abused and coming out of all that and the racism and the self-identity and, you know, that's all, you know, that's a huge, that's a major that you know, it's my life story. But to really look at the fact that I was lost, until I was 37 years old as a grown woman. With, my daughter was 15, going on 16, and I still had not stepped into the authority of who God says I can become. What I really appreciate from what you just shared is that it's never too late. And so mm. for people who may be listening, perhaps the mothers or fathers or grown women or men who are mm -hmm. tuning in who may think, wow, it's too late. Maybe I should have done these things when I was younger. It's never too late for God to meet you right where you are and help mm -hmm. you pick up the pieces and move forward. Uh, tell yeah. us how you are using this platform that God has given you to strengthen others. I know that you are a huge advocate for young people who are in the foster care system and between your books, your speaking engagements, your coaching and counseling, tell us how how you're using everything that you've been through to empower other people. Um, well, you know, at some point, I, I think I was probably uh, right before I retired. 
uh, so I was about 39 years old. I had all these things on my whiteboard in my room, my eraser board. I had all these goals. You know, my mind was really becoming awakened to the possibilities of anything. And so one day I was becoming overwhelmed, and I, I looked at it and I said, which one of these is going to take me to the ultimate pinnacle of what it is I'm trying to do and become? So I had to do a lot of brainstorming and soul-searching. You know, uh, I wanted to write articles. I wanted to be a nail technician. I wanted to learn the piano. I wanted to be a therapist. I was all over the place, but I was in love with life. And so I realized it was going to be writing my book. That was going to open all the doors for all the other things I wanted to do. Um, And when I did that, uh, I was, you know, spiritually moved to make it a national movement. When I came up with the, the subtitle, an imperative movement, in my mind simultaneously it said a national movement. And I said, wow, you know, not even six months prior uh, did I know that was going to be my path. Um, and so, because I was just writing a book. I was just spiritually led to write a book. And then the awareness came upon me that it was going to be a national movement. From there, it kind of snowballs. You get interviews, you meet people, you become more active in your community and all that kind of thing. Um, but as I was going through that process, um You know, there are people and children and women and men and, you know, I'm a therapist for substance abusers and mental health and foster children. You know, there's an array of people that need guidance and help, you know, people that are married. You know, and I'm like, what is the core issue? You know, so I really just like when I looked at my whiteboard to kind of nail down the pinnacle um, of where I wanted to go, I'm looking at all my clients and all my friends and the people that I know and myself, and I say, what is the pinnacle point? What what is it that is going to help all of these people? And it brought, you know, I don't know, um, I became aware. I didn't want to use aware because that is the point. It was awareness. I became aware that the point was people need awareness, that it's their mindset. They need to change their perspective. They need to broaden their mindset. They need to open the windows in their mind. People are very narrowly focused based on life experience and what people teach them and their family and how life is supposed to be viewed. But until we learn about opening our mindset up to a different perspective, real change intellectually cannot occur. And so that is what I'm offering, and that is what drives me now, that I understand the power of the mindset and the awareness level. Um, and so that's what I bring to the people. And, and it's all ages. I don't care uh, if you're a young child, you know, in your teens, all the way into my grandparents, you know, uh, my, my foster parents who are in their 60s. Uh, it's awareness level. It's about educating people to love themselves on a different manner and to love other people and to look at things in life from a different perspective so they can have a different experience. People who suffer in relationships, they have one perspective, and so that is their experience in life. But when you can teach someone how to have a different perspective, you open them up to having a different experience in life. And that's what it's all about, experiences. Um, with all of that being said, um, if there is a young lady that's currently listening to the show um, that is in foster care situation, what type of advice would you give her? Um, absolutely, number one, work on your spirituality. The spirituality aspect 
you know, everybody doesn't have to be a Christian. I'm a Christian. But you got to have some type of spirituality because, you know, we're not just intellectual people. We're spiritual beings first and foremost. When we're brought into this world, we know nothing intellectually, but we have a spirit. And so you got to know who you are from your spirit. Um, and then I say immediately start developing that and develop your personal growth and development. Read books. Because when you don't have parents and you don't have these positive people influencing your life, like I didn't have for many years except for one foster mother who was a flash in my life, who who did I have influencing me? Uh, nobody except for my abusers and my own negative self-talk. And, you know, maybe indirectly some positive people, but they weren't powerful enough to override the negative self-talk and my abusers, um, the experiences in my head that I was having with my abusers. So definitely read books because that's how we retrain our brain. I had to retrain my brain to think differently, to become aware, to become educated about what violence is and all this kind of thing, um, self-identity. So spirituality personal growth and development, and um, I have a new website called ask, with a dash, capri.com, and that's a website where foster children, alumni, and anybody that works with foster children, anybody in the community can submit questions, and I make a weekly video and I answer the questions. So that is an outlet. Sometimes foster children don't trust people enough because of um, – fear, so they don't ask certain personal questions, but that's a place where confidentiality is upheld 100%, no names are released or anything, and uh, she can directly ask any questions and I'll directly answer them. Well, that's great. Um, in closing, I know that you're, you're a two-time author, so you've got your first book, but your most recent book is entitled From Foster Care to Fabulous. Um, as we close, can you share uh, where people can pick up a copy? Who's the book geared towards? And in addition to the book, if somebody is interested in having you out as a guest speaker or to have you do a book signing, how can our listeners connect with you in addition to the site that you just gave us? Well, my core site is com, and there uh, you find out all about me, um, my books, um, I have free learning resources that have helped me over my lifetime, PDFs or YouTube videos, because pers- I YouTubed a lot of personal growth and development coaches. I didn't have parents, so I needed somebody to teach me. So when I learned about personal growth coaches online, man, you know, it's like the next best thing to parents, right? So um, I definitely have all that available on com, And, you know, from Foster Care to Fabulous and Imperatives Movement, was written directly to the foster child. My original vision was that every foster child in the nation needs to have this book because there's over 400,000 foster children in this nation, 20,000-plus age out every year. Most of them become homeless or incarcerated. It was noted by a congresswoman that 70% of the foster care population in California has become imprisoned, incarcerated, 70%. They don't have the guidance that they need. So I wrote that book specifically to give them a template of how to develop their life. And I start with my story. I go into how to learn to love yourself. That is the first step people need 
Um, and people that don't have children that don't have parents that grow up to become adults that still don't really have parents or have healthy parents or um, may have healthy parents, but they've experienced all this foster care stuff, you know, the trauma, maybe beatings, all kinds of things we experience in foster care. It's a complete displacement that children should not have to experience. We're we're born to grow up in a loving environment, a household, where we feel part of a whole. And foster children don't feel part of a whole, and definitely not part of a healthy whole on average. More often than not, they do not feel that way. And so I wrote that book specifically for the foster child. But the elements that I talk about there in there learning to love yourself, not living in anger, blame, fear, procrastination, creating your own identity, uh, learning about forgiveness. And then I go into more advanced things like goal setting and um, affirmations and, and the importance of connecting your intellectual thoughts to an emotional spiritual connection. That's the key. You know, everybody talks about law of attraction, all this kind of thing. What they're not specifically saying is that the real secret is that you're your mental concepts, whether positive or negative, when they're connected to an emotional determination, an emotional concreteness in your spirit, it will come to pass, whether it's self-sabotage or self-proclamation. You know, whatever it is that you are emotionally connected to, that's why victims stay victims. They're very emotionally connected to, I am a victim. Um, And until that changes, they won't be anything but a victim. So uh, the the elements in the book are universal, but it was specifically written for the foster child. All right. Well, listeners, you've heard it here on A Priceless Perspective. I thank you, Ms. Capri, for being a guest on our show, and I wish you both on behalf of, on behalf of both Audra and I, we wish you nothing but the best. I know that you have so many more people whose lives you have to touch. I mean, God has them out there. And so continue to use your voice and your gifts and your talents for his glory. Audrey, did Uh, you have anything? I'm sorry, can I say this one thing before we go? Because this is very important. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very important that people like us uh, get out there and communicate. You know, the reason that I expanded into a speaking career is that the children – People, adults, women, single mothers, people being abused, husbands that feel lonely and isolated. Uh, You know, men are not taught to talk about their emotions on average. Um, Mentorship. We need to get out there. Each and every one of us who's living a healthy, productive life has an obligation to, a moral obligation to get in their communities and speak to these people that need our guidance, our help, our vision, our empowerment. And so, uh, you know, I just say that I, I call I call everyone to search themselves, to become a speaker like I am, to get out there and open a window in the mind of someone who needs the guidance, mentorship, and direction that that person can provide for them. That's powerful. Well, that's a challenge for all the listeners and even for the youngest of listeners. You have a voice, and so begin to pray and to ask God how you can use your voice, no matter if you're in middle school or high school. You've got something powerful that God wants to do in and through you. So, again, Capri, I thank you for being a guest on the show. Continued success to you. We will continue to follow you. And for the listeners, go out. 
get a copy of her book, visit her website, and tune into the segments that she has on the website that she mentioned. Thank you, Capri, and God bless. Thank you. God bless you. Join the conversation. Visit us online at pricelessperspective.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. This show has been brought to you in part by Diamond in the Rough Youth Development Program and Courses and Gym Makers LLC.